0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. 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 If you don't know me, I am Ed Pavlik. I'm an elder here at Riverwood, and I have the immense privilege of walking through Ruth chapter 4 today. Um, It concludes our our sermon series, as we've been walking through. Aaron, Aaron, Jake, me, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, super short book. Um, But a wonderful story, and I hope you've all enjoyed it so far. I very much have, and it's opened my eyes to some things, some... Ideas that have rested in the back of my head for years that I didn't even know needed unpacking. Uh, and it's that type of concept that's been uh, sitting on me. Um, so two things to start. It's been on my mind uh, since I began to prepare um, today that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I believe that it's an approachingly perfect idea to contemplate the difficult things in Scripture. Hebrews 4. Chapter 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and a tense of the heart. For there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Thus saith the Lord. Amen. I think that should rest on all of us today as we think we understand certain things when we in fact do not. And God, who is merciful, gives us in such a gracious way, the understanding that he desires for us to have. I also got told the second thing this morning that I was a little nervous in in what I'm doing, and I got confronted by an individual here today who told me it's not just my responsibility to exposit God's word, but also something on you, to bend your hearts, to ask God to give you a clean heart that you can understand what's happening here today. And it made me feel a little better. It really did. So thank you. Um, <laughs> I think it's true. So pray with me, please. Uh, Father, help us, Lord, to contemplate the depths um, of, of your truth in a world so confused and falling apart and, and reassembling that entropy sets into our lives, Lord. We don't want it to, Lord. We want to be renewed, redeemed, restored to understanding, to be wise in what we do, zealous for your truth, the truth. Thank you, Lord, for all the ways that you use the people that you've gathered here today, for the ways that they don't even know they're being used by you, that you are so wonderful to ordain every moment of every day. Thank you, God, for that. Cover over my failings in preparation. If I might stumble in my words or misspeak, that it wouldn't cause flawed understanding and that you would see to it that your word is done. Your will is done. We desire it, Lord. and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, uh, Aaron and Jake have moved us over these last two weeks through a succinct and, and quite complete uh, love story in Ruth. And I have the privilege of finishing it with you. We have covered a committed love, a generous love, a providential love, and if you haven't read it already, a redeeming love. As you go along with me, verse by verse, open our Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. It's near the beginning. It's closer to the beginning than I've been in my teaching and preparation, yeah, left to right style in the book for a long time. Sometimes I spend too much time in the New Testament. I forsake the Old Testament. Um, maybe some of you are guilty of that. You shouldn't. It's all one contiguous story. If you have a copy of God's Word, Please turn it to Ruth. If you have it on your phone, all the better. Have it with you. Keep it open and follow along. If you don't have a copy out on the front table, there's some copies for you to pick up. We encourage you to keep one with you. Um, but like I said, on the phone is just fine. But I do implore you to have a copy of God's Word that won't die or distract you with other things and notifications that can't lose signal to keep that paper copy with you. It's a, it's a good thing, in, in my opinion. Yeah. So we're going to start by reading In chapter 4 of Ruth, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. So we don't get too far before I feel that uh, some explanation is required. Uh, So we open chapter 4 with Boaz about to uh, handle business. Naomi, at the end of chapter 3, said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So he said, I'm going to take care of it. Naomi knows he's going to take care of it. At a city gate, those times and in those days, it would have served several functions. Boaz is going up to the gate. It's not just a simple entry point. Here it would be used as a place to be heard while parties involved would be conducting business, an official place. So Boaz, just left Ruth early in the morning, gave her provision to bring back to Naomi. He walks up off the the threshing floor, out of the fields and straight to the city gate. He is set on the one thing his heart now desires. Keep in mind chapters 1, 2, and 3 as we move through 4 today. He knows what needs to happen. But you see, Boaz is a man of conviction. He's not going to get what he wants the easy way. He will engage in the right way of doing things, a man of integrity. And here our man Boaz is waiting for an unnamed kinsman redeemer. I want to explain uh, another word before moving on. Well, two concepts, really. The Hebrew word, goel. It's the term for kinsman redeemer. That person would have to be the following. The nearest living blood male relative. This is derived from the word gaal, which means to redeem or to buy back. The term is used to identify the nameless kinsman redeemer in our first account, our first goel, but it also applies to Boaz himself, our 2nd Goel. He is a reminder, or remember, that he is also a kinsman-redeemer, a go-well. This underpins an important point in what Boaz was trying to do concerning a governing concept from last week that Jake touched on, and I'm going to expand on a little bit. The Leveret Doctrine, the Leveret Principle, the Leveret Law. It's all these words. And what I want to expand on refresh you is that as well. Remember that it was an aspect of the law held in principle, and in some respects, a cultural pressure. Not a hard and fast rule all the time. There was nuance to be understood in this doctrine as cultures would try to keep true to God's word, but yet adapted their own um, understanding traits, characteristics to what they were doing. And so four points to this. One, that Goel, well in the Leveret Doctrine, would have been responsible to buy a fellow Israelite out of slavery. That's Leviticus 25:48. Two, responsible to avenge the blood of a murdered family member in Numbers thirty five, nineteen. Three, responsible to buy back family land, that's Leviticus twenty five, twenty five, and four, responsible to marry to carry on the family line by marrying a childless widow, in Deuteronomy twenty five, five through ten. So points three and four, keep those in mind as we read on in the second part of verse one and through verse ten. And behold, the Redeemer whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people if you will redeem it redeem it but if not if but if you will not tell me that i may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and i come after you and he said i will redeem it then boaz said the day you buy the field from the hand of naomi you will also acquire ruth the moabite the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance the, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnessed this day. So there's several things to cover here at the start. We're gonna cover the gate and the sandal as witness and ceremony. I want to highlight the importance here of witness and ceremony, the gate and the sandal. So the gate, the follower of God has rigor built into their lives. We don't just give easy yeses, the Christian especially. In witness of these elders here gathered, the people will know what has transpired. It is a testimony to the actions as proper and legal. The Goel could change his mind people do. But this has been witnessed, and community can hold them to account, like a couple other ceremonies that you might be familiar with, weddings and baptisms. In our weakness and our impatience, we try to get what we want, the low-hanging fruit of choices, like a Christian maybe thinking they might elope and run off with just the two of them. You say to each other, why do we need those other people? Why do we need those witnesses? This is just for us, or a person coming to faith and thinking the quite in personal contemplation of the decision is enough. I'm just going to sit here and ruminate over my choice and not tell anyone what's not. We make decisions in isolation, often, without accountability to other people. And this is important to remember. As those witnesses, that testimony and the people to hold you account are the ones in community that hold you together. I tell the people closest to me that I desire for them to... Take me to task, when I start to deviate from the things I've promised. I think it's a wonderful thing. And it honors the one we ought to honor. So Boaz knows that redeeming both the land and the lion are not required. And so he opens with the matter of the land. The first Goel, the unnamed, he snaps that right up, no hesitation. He wants that land for himself. It adds to his wealth, it adds to his property. But when pressed past the aspect of the Leveret principle that the first Goel found so appealing, into the area that was not so clear and carried familial and social cost. He folded right there and there. In verse 6, he says, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Keep that in mind. I'm sure there's some expressions here to be involved, and maybe a lesson could be uh, taken out of it. Not get the fields, not the wife, why by the cow, etc., etc. There's things that we do in ease, that get us what we want in the moment that might not necessarily be right. The first, Goel, he just wanted the field. He didn't want the responsibility of a person. The second, better Goel, knew the value of both and made a way for that to happen, to redeem them to himself and out of his desire to do so while honoring and fulfilling the law. Making a way, redeeming to himself and out of his desire to do so. The first go well does give a reason, though. It's not a great one. Most likely to do with him already having a son or sons who will soon or are of age to take inheritance from him. Since this set of principles has been around since Genesis 38, which is quite a long time for these people, eight, uh, uh, verse 8 in Genesis 38. You've got to turn there, but I'm going to read it real quick for you just to give us some context. And Judah took a wife for her, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, keep in mind something that Naomi said to Ruth earlier in Ruth, remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now there's a lot more to that story, and I encourage you to go back and read it. But there's precedent given in 38 here that provides wonderful context to the rest of our story in Ruth. I absolutely love it. It's been an expectation for the Jews for a long time. The Genesis passage even mentions waiting on a son so they grow up and marry Tamar. It's a lot to read into. But now our ceremony. Back in Ruth. I'm going to read 8 and 10 again. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnessed this day. The sandal may seem like an odd thing to do, an odd way for business to be concluded. But that fourth principle in at Doctrine, I think we have the text for Deuteronomy 25, and I'll read five through 10. Laws concerning at marriage. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then the brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face, and she shall, say, she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of the house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. You guys could try that. Next time you don't get your way in a business deal and just go for his shoe and spit on him. Maybe it has way more profound effects than we think. Like, oh, that's silly. they would be like, oh, it means business. Maybe I should reconsider. <laughs> the precedent would have been known unto these people in function. And while it seems odd to us, it would have been profound to them. The first Goel, accepting his shame, even removes his own sandal in the story. And there's context in uh, verse 7 that says that was the, 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 the custom of, them, of those people adapted over time. They'd taken it and they'd changed it a little bit. But in removing his own sandal, and maybe saving to be spit in the face, and save some reputation, he still stood firm as rejection in front of the elders. These witnesses and this ceremony it solidified that transaction legally binding and establishing the right now of Boaz to act where the first Goel would not. And our man of integrity, the second Goel, he does not disappoint. So read again, verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and all that belonged to Chilean and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife Perpetuate the name of the dead and its inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. They all saw the ceremony. They're all called to account. We read it several times today. (laughs) And by the man who purchased back Ruth and the land, the kinsman redeemer, the second Goel, was Boaz. And the good people, they gave a reply, an acknowledgement of prayer in chapter 4, 11 and 12. How would you like at your own wedding ceremony that someone says, I hope you have a boatload of kids. Like, that's what they pray for you right away. That's a blessing. It's wonderful. I want to take a side step and talk about Ruth for a second. Um, This is a direct quote. um, So I did not think this up uh, from a pastor named uh, Gary Hamrick. I think he's from Virginia. Uh, So Ruth. God took a pagan, a Gentile woman from Moab, She was the descendant of an incestuous relationship with Lot and his oldest daughter whose people worshipped Chemosh through human sacrifice. She didn't know God, she didn't love God, and she did not worship God. She was widowed, destitute, and hopeless. That sounds pretty bad, right? But observe and think of this. If the Jews in Jesus' day were not so blind by their own cultural, religious pride as set apart and keepers of the law by their own strength, mind you, They would have seen this then thousand-year-old message about God grafting in other peoples and redeeming them and saving them. They had lessons and they couldn't see them. Their hearts were not clean or bent, fixed on what they ought to be doing and not what God was doing in them. They could have seen what would our world be like if they did. Not the same. Aaron also talked um, two weeks ago about Ruth being a woman of character and substance. So are we who desire to be saved so unlike Ruth? We lay at our Savior's feet and ask. We bring nothing. We desire our means to be insured, our futures to be made certain, and for our lives to be saved. We have lessons in Ruth because we are Ruth. We are the bride. Whose bride? We ask for redemption, for restoration from our glorious Boaz. So this comparison has been drawn. And I brought my if you guys ever met Joel Sage? Anybody remember Joel Sage? He would say, when I go to Bible study, I have a thicker Bible than this in NIV. He's like, you write your smart Bible. I'm like, yeah. So I always, always just read out of the smart Bible. Because I'm not smart. Yeah. So this is more of a fun observation. And one that I thought of after Ruth goes, this woman is a woman of character. And in studying, this is a, it's a MacArthur uh, NKJV study Bible. If you guys ever want to look one up. But it's fantastic. Ruth and the Proverbs 31 wife. The virtuous wife of Proverbs 31:10 is personified by virtuous Ruth, whom the same Hebrew word is used in 3:11. With amazing pra- parallel, they share at least eight character traits, which I'll list below. One wonders, in concert with Jewish tradition. If King Lemuel's mother might not have been Bathsheba who orally passed the family heritage of Ruth's spotless reputation along to David's son Solomon, Lemuel, which means devoted to God, could have been the family name for Solomon, like Jedediah in Second Samuel 12.25. Who then could have penned Proverbs 31.10.31 31 with Ruth in mind? So each woman was devoted to her family, delighting in her work, diligent in her labor, dedicated to godly speech. Dependent on God, dressed with care, discreet with men, and delivering blessings. If you want to see the verse-for-verse verse comparisons, I'll give them to you after if you want them. Just fascinating, and I think that's a wonderful stuff. Um, God is good, and this whole thing is on purpose. Every sentence is on purpose. Don't forget that. Now we wrap it up. We heard Aaron in the first week discuss the failure of Elimelech. About his death resulting from disobedience to his namesake. His name means God is my king. To God and to God's covenant. His sons also died complicit in this offense. And so his line is effectively blotted out. But God sees all time from his throne in heaven. It says in Psalms thirty-three, thirteen through fifteen: The Lord looks down from heaven; he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds, beginning to end, in a moment, God sees it all. You are never without care, and you are never alone. So Ruth thirteen through twenty-two. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, how would you like not name your own kid? They named him, <laughs> saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. There's a really awesome book called After the Flood that I really wish I'd bought. Who was was I talking to that already read it? You'd read it. Yes, fantastic book, After the Flood. You should read it. (laughs) Elimelech's family is redeemed through the actions of the second Goel, Boaz. God sees all his people, all actions, all desires, all time from his throne, and he knows the beginning from the end. So that being true, consider this. The restoration of the namesake Naomi in Obed is the glorious redemption of lineage to the one who is descended from David. The one they waited on and the one we look back to for our own redemption. He is Christ, our Lord, our God, our Savior and our friend. Christ's line, despite the failure of Elimelech, is redeemed. He left the house of bread in disobedience. But God returns the lineage through Boaz and his redemption to the house of bread by legal precedent kept in the engrafting of the Gentile Ruth, whom Boaz desired to redeem as Christ desires us. I once heard that in likeness to the leveret that applies to us in Christ and his redemptive authority to us. As all are engrafted into the family of Christ, and until I began to study this book and chapter, it was some hearsay in my head with a hundred other Bible trivia facts that I thought were just interesting. But when Christ in his mercy allows us to understand the totality of his work and his perfect timing, it's beautifully coherent. All of scripture is knit together so tightly in ways that we probably don't even understand formally and academically yet as well. This should drop us to our knees in worship of God who shapes the very moments of our day in desire to be saved, testify to the glory and honor that he deserves. J.I. Packard, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, N.T. Wright, Michael Horton, John MacArthur, Douglas Wilson, and other prominent theologians today find themselves in good company. And why do you give you those names? Uh, there are a plurality, a diversity of, of understandings and respects given to teachers in our world. And this represents... Um, quite a diverse corpus of individuals with varying opinions on many things, but they are solidified here in understanding the meaning of the Redeemer in Boaz as pointing to Christ. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus as the ultimate kinsman Redeemer in his letter to the Galatians in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that me might receive adoption to sonship. Listen to these as well. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. For you all know that it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, but handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Titus 2, 13 through 14. While we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all wickedness, to the purify himself for a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. First Timothy two, five through six, though there is no one God, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all people. In Isaiah fifty-nine twenty. The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Amen. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. By seeking the will of God first, Boaz and then Christ accomplished more than just a self-serving act of preservation could seek first the kingdom of heaven. I say this to you. God's love is committed and generous and providential and redemptive. Reflect on that today. Everyone, every day after, nonstop. You think you don't have time for it, you do. Everything else, cast aside. That doesn't happen first. I know you have responsibilities. I know you have things in your family to take care of there's one who tends to your soul, who gives you strength, is your primary point and purpose. That's Christ. If you lost everything, you'd still have him. You'll get old and lose your sight. You'll get old and lose your legs, strengthen your arms, even your understanding. You lose your appetite. You can't sleep. And all you'll have is the contemplation of Christ. Take this book Commit persons to memory. Know that Christ is with you. And keep them on your heart and in your mind. A clean heart. I want it for you, Lord. And do that all until the glorious day when we can see our maker face to face. Amen and amen. So would you all play with me, please? (sighs) Father, we know that you are good. And we know we ought to contemplate what you do in our lives we ask Lord that you would give us strength to do so remove the blocks in our lives that we perceive as something in the way and help us to know you to see that you are our Redeemer you always were from the beginning of time until today and forevermore that we would wait on you to come if it takes 10,000 years so be it Lord we ask that you would be with us each day Thank you, Father. Give us strength. For you are merciful and gracious and good. It's in these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.